truly, Father God, you are worthy. We pray that you will bless this time. Allow us, Father God, to give you thanks in all things as your word says. Take us, Father God, to another level in you so that we will be so careful to glorify you. Thank you for these, your people, who have come out today to worship you. And I pray, Father God, that you'll allow us to have a mighty experience in you. Go into our heart, rearrange things that's out of place, put things in the proper place, and allow us to leave on fire for you. Let us be so on fire for you that our co-workers will notice us burning for you this week. Our spouses, Father God, will notice us burning for you this week. Our children, oh God, will notice us being on fire for you this week. Help us, Father God. In Jesus' name we do pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. While you're standing, if you can grab your Bibles, and let's go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. As we continue to preach on what true or authentic community looks like today, we're going to tag this text, Community Essentials, part one, unity and humility. Community Essentials. So we've been talking about what does true community look like? That's what we mean by authentic community. We're saying what, how does the people of God live together? How do we live together? How do we live together? We know that we are building up to next Easter, 2015, uh, our small groups or community groups. And we are just putting those essentials that's needed in place in order for us to have deep, long-lasting, gospel-centered relationships. And by gospel-centered, I mean relationships that is built on Jesus. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, what you hold in your hand is not a self-help book. Um, It is the very words of God. It's not merely written by man. It is sufficient. It is inerrant, meaning it is without error. It is God-breathed. Let's read it. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. Praise God for his 
His Word. Community Essentials, Part 1. We'll be looking at unity and humility. Think every single person in this room, at some point this week, was on a quest for significance. We all find ourselves sometimes bowing at the altar of significance. That altar is a false altar, and it is a false idol. We're learning in the Men's Institute about idolatry this semester, and we're learning that an idol is anything that we easily give our attention to. It is a good thing that we make become the ultimate thing. And we've been talking about three big idols, three big idols that we normally don't think about, but that really controls us. And out of these idols, we see different sins coming. For example, we've been talking about the idol of comfort and how we can worship comfort, meaning that we believe the lie that we are most happiest and will receive joy when we are most comfortable. So we begin to worship comfort. And if we're not comfortable, we we lash out in order to get comfort. Then we've been talking about the idol of control. And we've been looking at our own hearts and our lives and seeing that that another big idol is, is being in control. And we believe the lie that if everything just goes the way that I think it should go, I will have joy and the world will be at peace. But there's a third idol, and that's the idol of significance. And it is a a dangerous idol. And what this idol tells us is that if we only can get a certain person, a specific group, the colleagues in my profession, my spouse, my, my husband, if I only can get them to find me worthy of attention or love, if I only can get them to acknowledge my value or my greatness, if I only can get them to, to not disgrace me, then I'll be important and I'll be acceptable. So we, we fight for significance because we believe that Finding significance and someone finding us as significant is what we need to be most happiest and to experience joy. And we end up fighting for our worth, right? We end up competing against other people because we believe that we have to be the alpha male in a situation. We have to be right in the situation. We have to have our preferences and our our wants, and we we end up being either two things, one of two things, either a man-pleaser, one who is living their life constantly trying to please other people, thereby we are a slave to other people, or we find ourselves constantly fighting with people because they are not recognizing our greatness because we feel that we need them to recognize our greatness in order to be satisfied. But the Bible tells us that that's a lie. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 says that if we are just trying to please men, we are not being a servant of Christ. See, the Bible tells us that 
finding our worth and our value and our appreciation and our acceptance in the eyes of others will eventually lead to failure. But all of us, at some point this week, I'm sure, found ourselves vying for that and fighting for that. Some of us, we, we have a fear of being rejected or humiliated. And this idol of significance often plays itself out in our lives in a way that says we we definitely, we need their approval in order to feel love. So your biggest fear is that you will let others down, that you, you, you find yourself constantly beating yourself up after you talk to someone because you're micromanaging your conversations, wondering what they are thinking about you. Or you you find yourself constantly being combative with people because if they reject your idea or if they reject what you've put on a table, you feel like you are less than. The Bible speaks to our hearts by letting us know that fighting for significance in the eyes of other people is not the way to find lasting joy. The Bible speaks to our hearts by by letting us know that in order to be happy, in order to have joy, we don't need to be approved by man, but, but rather we need to see ourselves from the lens that God sees us. The idol of significance kills unity in relationships, and it is grounded in pride. Some of us... We're not unified with our spouse because we're fighting for control in the house and significance. Not unified with our brothers and our siblings because we find ourselves competing with them. We want to be seen as the most significant by mom or dad. Remember the Brady Bunch? Marsha, 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 right? We've got that Marsha syndrome because we want to be seen a certain way. When we uproot the idol of significance and vain conceit, we experience freedom. Paul here is writing to the church at Philippi, and he is encouraging this church because this church was a church that was very near and dear to him. Paul loved this church. In fact, out of all of Paul's letters, this is probably the most warm letter that he has. And in and, and Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, we see Paul starting this letter off by giving thanks to God. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all are making my prayer with joy. And he goes on to say in verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is writing the church at Philippians and he is, is filled almost to the top with joy because of their witness and because of the way that they love Jesus. In fact, he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi, a poor church, and he's giving them thanksgiving that even though they're poor and even though they lack, they still raised an offering to send to the church of Jerusalem and he is overwhelmed with their love. But the one, one of the things that Paul sees in the church of Philippi. One of the things that's nagging on him is that their community and that unity is at stake. And he says that in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, 
I entreat Yuda and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we had two women who were uh, at odds against each other. And it appears that this, these women were probably well-known women and them being at odds were beginning to kill the unity of the church. They were fighting for significance. Now, unlike some of Paul's other letters, he doesn't give a theological reason for the disunity. In Paul's letters to Timothy, in Paul's letters to Titus, in Paul's letter to Corinth, he, he sees some theological issues and he lays out and corrects those theological issues which are causing division. But these two women, as we look at this text, this was not a theological issue. These two women were probably disagreeing because of preferences. They preferred things a certain way. And in these preferences, there was an issue of significance. They were fighting to be significant in probably the eyes of each other and the eyes of the congregation. As we are getting ready to smart community groups and as we are saying as a church, we want to look like the church in the Bible, meaning that we want to be in each other's lives to bear each other's burdens and, and help each other to fight against sin. As we are moving in that direction, because we are sinners, there are going to be some disagreements. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're close with someone and if you all are loving each other and practicing bold love, there are going to be some issues of preference. And we've got to be careful not to let those issues divide us because Satan wants that to happen. So Paul here is encouraging this church to do three, three, three things. Number one, we see Paul passionately Please for unity. Second, we see that Paul passionately pleads for humility. And lastly, we see that Paul passionately points this congregation to Jesus. Paul passionately pleads for unity. We see that in verse 1. He is going to really push for this church to find true unity. Because in order for authentic community to go forth, unity must be present. So he says these words, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. What is Paul saying? He's saying, fill up the rest of my joy tank. Right? He says, my joy tank is almost full, but fill up the rest of my joy tank by being unified. And he, he points to this unity by saying, if you have experienced certain things in Jesus, I need you to do this. If you had experienced certain things, in, and what does he point to? He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Other words... If you receive encouragement daily for Jesus, I need you to do something for me. He says, if there's any comfort from love, and we can add, if there's any comfort from the love of Christ. 
That's how the NIV version says. If you are finding comfort from the love of Christ, I need you to do something for me. He, he's, he's rallying them up. Paul, what is it? If you have any participation in the spirit, the word participation is the word koinonia, which we saw a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is fellowship. He's saying if you are fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, if you are enjoying the Holy Spirit each day, If you are connected and walking with Christ and experiencing the love of the Holy Spirit, he says, complete my joy. And then what does he say? He says, how do you complete it? By being unified, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Joy, Paul says, comes through unity. Joy comes from the people of God being unified. Paul, as an apostle and church planner, saying, church at Philippi, what's going to make me be filled with joy, not happiness. Happiness depends on what's happening. Joy is happiness without the circumstances mattering, right? It is an ability to, to, to be satisfied in Jesus when everything else is not going right. He said, if you are going to fulfill my joy, now wait a minute, Paul, You're in prison. You're telling me that what you need from us is unity and you're in prison? He said, if you're going to fulfill my joy, be unified. Be unified. Psalm 33 says, how beautiful it is to dwell together in unity. Then the psalmist goes on and he gives two examples of how beautiful that unity looks. He gives the example of oil falling down the beard of Aaron. And then he gives a, a kind of agricultural example that would have connected with his people. He says, the psalmist says in Psalm 133, unity is beautiful. It's beautiful. Look at what he says here as he pleased unity amongst the brothers and sisters. He says, being of the same mind. What does it mean to be of the same mind? According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, being of the same mind means having the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. And what is the mindset of Christ Jesus? We'll look at it a little later, but in essence, it's a mind to serve others. As he goes on to say, it's a mindset to count other people as more significant than ourselves. Unity is found when we don't fight for significance with other people. Not only of the same mind, but having the same love. He says you should have the same love. You know, people define love differently. Some people say, I love you, and it's, it's with a, a deep love. You can tell they, they, they sacrifice for you, Right? They, they, they speak the truth to you in love. You got a little nose booger, they'll tell you, hey, man, something's in your nose. I've told you because I love you, right? You're pronouncing a word wrong. They say, listen, you always pronounce this word wrong, right? <laughs> I'm not telling you this to be at beef with you, but I love you. Other people, they're different. they say they love you, but it looks different. They hit you and abuse you. Oh, but, but I love you, girl. It's not love. But Paul says, be of the same love. What's the same love? Again, we're going to see later on in this text, he shows us the same love by pointing us to the mind and the example of Christ, a love that sacrifices itself for you. 
being a full accord. Now, this word in the, in the Greek, uh, uh, most theologians say this is a very deep term. It, 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 for us today, would mean being soulmates. He's saying be so close together that it, it seems as if you share the same soul, the same essence, the same mission, which is a mission to sacrificially live in light of Christ's sacrifice so that people would be saved. And being of one mind again. So Paul is pointing them to unity. Now, unity is not sameness. We, as the body of Christ, we are diverse. We are different people. We like different music and wear different style shoes and stay in different types of homes and use different types of toothpaste. But even in those differences, we can be one. Because we can unite around what matters most, which is Christ and his cross and his resurrection and the life that he set aside for us. It's like refrigerator magnets, right? You got refrigerator magnets, you've got all types of different magnets, but they all are unified or connected by the same thing. Some are shaped different, some are wedding invitations. Others are from our insurance company. May have a magnet. We've got a magnet reminding us of our our tax appointment that we set from last year. But at the end of the day, that that same thing is they have one thing in common. That's that magnetic force. And even though we're different, we have Jesus in common. And that should unite us, Paul says. That should unite us. But if we are constantly fighting for approval and constantly fighting to be the alpha male or alpha female of our family or of our friendship, unity will not happen. Unity will not happen. We can't experience unity while fighting for significance among each other. Listen to this. This is about, it's going to be a, a rather lengthy quote, um, and it's coming uh, from a philosopher of the second century. It's called the Apology of Artetes. And he was writing a letter to the emperor of that time defending Christianity. Now, we see in Acts chapter 2 a couple weeks ago how Christian community was, how interrelated they were and how unified they were. Of course, every community is going to have some type of disunity, but they they were coming together and they were were, were living life together. And we saw how God did great things. And and this philosopher who was now turned into a Christian writes a letter to the emperor in order to straighten things out with the emperor. Because there's different things going on, and the emperor is, is believing what he's hearing from his other people, from people who want to stump out Christianity. And this is the picture that he explains. Now, the Christians, O king, by going out and seeking, have found the truth, for they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they receive those commandments which they have engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason they do not commit adultery or immorality. They 
They do not bear false witness or embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor the father, their father and mother and do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. Whatever they do not wish that others should do to them, they in turn do not do. And they do not eat the food sacrificed to idols. Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are are pure as virgins and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from all unlawful sexual contact and from impurity in the hope of the world to come. As for their bondmen and their bondwomen and their children, If there are any, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brothers, brethren without distinction. They refuse to worship strange gods and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who does not have ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christian finds a stranger, they bring him to their homes and they rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear of any of their number who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it is possible to redeem him, they will set him free. If they find poverty in their midst and do not have spare food, they fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with necessities. They observe scrupulously the word living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour they praise and thank God for his goodness and for their food and their drink. They rejoice. And when one passes away from the world, they give thanks to God and escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. When a child is born to one of them, They praise God. If he dies in infancy, they thank God the more as for one who has passed through the world without sin. But if one of them dies in his iniquity or in his sins, they grieve bitterly and sorrow as over the over one who is about to meet his doom. Such, O king, is the commandment given to Christian. And such, such is their conduct. Writers of first and second century constantly talk about how Christianity Christianity spread because the church was a unified church. They, They were on mission together and they became unified around the word of God. When we find ourselves fighting for significance, we find ourselves putting ourselves in a position of disunity, of disunity. So how are we healed from disunity? Well, Paul then makes a passionate plea for humility. 
for humility. He, he, he calls them to be united around Jesus, reunited around his mindset, his love, to be on full accord. And now he, he calls them to humility. Verse 3 and verse 4, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. To be humble means to make oneself low. It means not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. C.S. Lewis. To be humble, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 3, is to not have a high view of yourself, but the proper view of yourself. Humility is necessary for salvation. Humility is necessary in our walk as we are being sanctified for us not to think highly of ourselves than we ought. Look what he says, do nothing from rivalry. That word rivalry in some translation is is translated as strife. It says don't do anything from strife. Don't do anything from a heart of bitterness. Don't do anything from a heart of contention. Or conceit, that word conceit in the Greek is is a a picture of empty glory. That's what pride is, it's empty glory. Paul tells the church, he he pleads with them, he says, don't do anything for empty glory. Anything to be simply praised by man. Many people... Many of us, we really struggle because we think that being significant in the eyes of others is going to really give us joy. And we continue to fight for what we think is right or our preferences, even if they don't matter. Even at work, you may have a coworker that you are constantly going back and forth with and y'all have a, a, a little rivalry about who's the smartest. So whenever that person says something or, or, or seems correct, you try to think of something or a way that you can one-up them. Right? That is empty worship. Empty worship of ourselves. That is empty glory. We are trying to glorify ourselves and, and make ourselves famous because we believe that that is going to satisfy. Some... For some, it's our accomplishments. We find it hard not, when we meet someone new, not to mention everything that's good about us. We try to work in a conversation maybe of where we went to school, whether that's high school or college or grad school, right? We try to make sure everyone understands that we have been decorated with this title or this position. The Bible says that that is empty. Solomon says that all is vain. He he talked about that, how he pursued wisdom and he pursued knowledge. And he says at the end of the day, it's all vanity. That will not satisfy our hearts. Paul says here that we ought to count others as more significant than ourselves. The opposite of humility is pride, and pride is overindulging ourselves in self-concern. Pride is when we focus on ourselves 
and overindulge ourselves with ourselves. When we constantly are thinking about ourselves, and yes, pride can be arrogance, but it also can can show up in self-pity. When we're constantly in a state of self-pity and constantly trying to, trying to get someone to compliment us and, and someone to tell us how great we are, that's pride. Because what we're saying is that, that life would be better and joy would be best received if someone would just affirm my greatness. In order to, to have the type of community that God is calling us to have, we need to humble ourselves. We need to make ourselves low. We need to see that that winning an argument or being the smartest person in the room does not satisfy. People seeing how dope or how fresh you are or how good you look or how crisp your lining is does not satisfy. That compliment will soon fade away and then you'll be searching for another compliment. And then after they've gotten used to that a great accomplishment that, they were, that you were holding on to, now you've got to find something else to convince them of how great you are. Satan, Lucifer, was kicked out of heaven for pride. And Jesus brought us salvation through humility. At the end of the day, it comes down Paul is saying, to us being servants. He says, don't do anything out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is saying, take on a heart of a servant. All of us, daily, take on a heart of a servant. When we are looking to our own interests, we take on a heart of a consumer. And there's a difference between a consumer and a servant. A consumer asks the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Right? At the end of the day, what's in it for me? A consumer asks the question, how are you going to meet my needs? A consumer finds themselves critical and constantly looking at the faults and weaknesses of others. A consumer gravitates towards people who only can offer them something. Paul says, don't be a consumer. Don't look for your own interests. He says, be a servant. A servant has a mindset that says, how can I serve others? Not what's in it for me. A servant has a mindset who says, whose needs can I meet? Not how are you going to meet my needs? And what have you done for me lately? Doom, 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 doom. Right? What have you done for me lately? I wasn't an 80s baby, all right? Well, I was, but I wasn't. <laughs> so my beat may be a little off. Or maybe that was the early 90s, amen? <laughs> but that's not our theme music. Our theme music is not what can you do for me and what have you done for me lately. Our theme music is how can I serve you? Whose needs can I meet? A, a servant, instead of being critical and constantly looking for fault in someone, 
A servant looks for God's grace at work in in a person's life. A servant recognizes the beauty in the least of these and embraces diversity. Consumer is like, this is the way I wanted it. This is the way I prefer it. If it's not like this, I'm unsatisfied and there's beef between us. A servant says, listen, I prefer it to be this way, but at the end of the day, this isn't the most critical thing. You can have it. And it really comes down to an issue of faith. The difference between a consumer and a servant is faith. Hear this quote from Robert Thune from the book Gospel Center Community. He says, our our consumerism is rooted in a lack of faith. We are worried about what others think because we are not convinced that God delights in us. We are anxious because we do not believe that God will meet our needs. We vie for attention because we do not think that God rewards what is done in secret. It's an issue of faith. Consumers live in fear. When we're being servants, we are living in faith. The Bible tells us that God delights in us. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. You say, no, I've got to make this happen. They've they've got to see that I'm right. God says, no, look, look to God by faith that 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 you don't need them in order to have pleasure for the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he adorns his people who are humble. You don't need that person to be significant. You don't need them to know how great your great accomplishments to be significant. You need to know that God sees you as significant. And when you know that you are free. You are free to live. You are free to love. You are no longer a puppet of people's compliments and comments. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He finally came to a place where he says, I count all of these things as rubbish. All of my earthly accomplishments, I have now counted them as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, these accomplishments will not satisfy me. Philippians chapter 4, he said he had to learn to be content. It's a learning process. He he learned to be content in in a way that he knows that as he says, I have a model that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul wants them to have joy and he wants them to be unified, but unity cannot happen without humility. Within your day-to-day life, look to God for significance and you'll be free to count other people as more significant than yourself. The Bible says that God will meet our needs. We don't have to look out for our own interests first. He will take care of us. That's the faith that Abraham had in Genesis chapter 13. Remember that? Abraham and Lot, 
They come and they see the land. They're going to go separate ways. Lot looks at the land and he thinks of his own interest, right? And he scoops up the land. He's like, hey, hey, bro, I'm going to take this side. (laughs) I'm going to go this way. You, You go this way, right? And Abraham, by faith, said, okay, we'll settle over here. And who did God bless? You don't have to be a crab in a barrel at work in order to be up next for promotion. The Bible says that God is the one who exalts and he is the one who pulls down. Your boss is not the one that's in control. God is in control. The Bible tells us that we don't have to vie for attention because God rewards what is done in secret. And that's the reason why some of us, we, we fight for significance because we want to be rewarded. But the Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 and 6 that, that God will reward us when we work in secret. And we're fighting for significance because we don't believe that God will reward us. We believe that the reward of man is greater than the reward of God. In your friendships, be a servant and not a consumer. Be a a servant and not a consumer. Some of us, we cut people off when they stop doing exactly what we want them to do. Within the church, be a servant and not a consumer. Don't ever come into a church with an attitude of what can you do for me first outside of the essentials, the doctrine of essentials. But you come in with, how can I serve? On your job, are you a consumer or a servant? Are you, along with your coworkers, constantly being critical of everything that your employer does? Or are you looking for the grace that God has given your place of employment? Because it makes a big difference. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights on the world. Everybody in your place of employment is complaining, Paul says. This world... Everyone's consumers. Without the Holy Spirit, we're consumers. Our sin nature makes us bent towards concerning self and pleasing self. But we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and the example of Jesus on the cross, and that should make us servants. There should be a difference about the way we work. Sure, we don't like the policies. Sure, we think it's silly to be there 15 minutes early when we're not getting paid. Sure, we hate the lunchroom. But Paul says, just eat, don't grumble, don't complain. Your light will shine. He says, says, you will be different. Mother Teresa served in Calcutta. Many of us know the, the name, but we don't know what she did. She was just a servant. Went to Calcutta, moved there, and just served people did everything she could for the poor and for the broken. 
and now she is a household name. And whether or not you agree with her politics or her theology, she loved serving people. In 1995, I believe she was awarded with a Nobel Peace Prize, a, a small, little, seasoned, older lady impacted the world and is a household name, not because she went for her own interest, but because she sought to serve the interest of others. Something honorable in that. Youth at school, are you a consumer or are you a servant? No matter how young you are, if you say that you are a Christian, God has called you to be a servant. 13 years old, the gospel, if you love Jesus and if you believe that he's died on a cross for you, should motivate you to serve people, not simply to look and see how you can take. In your marriage, are you a servant or are you a consumer? Marriage is our first community. Marriage is our first community. Husbands. Be a servant, not a consumer. We have to have a mindset of seeing our spouse as more significant. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to, that we are to sacrifice as, for our wife as Christ sacrificed for the church. A, a, a servant at home is not looking to see what can she do for me today. But he comes into the house with the mentality of what can I do for her? How can I serve her? How can I lighten her load? How can I make her night easier? But when we look for our own interests, we say, why the house ain't clean? Where's dinner? Why the baby stink? What's up with later tonight? And vice versa. Wives, look out for the interest of your husbands first. We are bent to look out for ourselves first. Paul says, look out for your spouse first. And I guarantee you, you're not going to neglect yourself. But if you have this mind, he says, which is in Christ Jesus, if you have the mindset to to see other people's needs before you see your own, he says, convinced in marriage that we ought to argue more about who is going to serve each other than why aren't you serving me when we look to Jesus. The key to humility, Paul says in verse 4, let each of you look not to his own interest, but also in the interest of others. Verse 5, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Key to humility, as he says, is having the mind of Christ. So we see that Paul passionately points them to, to unity. Paul passionately points them to humility. And lastly, we see that Paul passionately points them to Jesus. And he then goes into a, a hymn, literally. In the Greek, this is written as a hymn, the next six verses. We love hymns because hymns are, are songs of substance and theology, and doctrine. 
Now, whether or not Paul penned this hymn himself or if he borrowed it from their old uh, First Baptist hymnal back then, I don't know. But the fact is, is that he, he when talking about humility and talking about serving others, he, he pointed them passionately to Jesus. And look at what he points out about Jesus, verse 6. He points out that he was in the form of God and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he said Jesus was the the same essence of God, the same nature of God, equal to God as a person in a trinity, but he did not count equality to be grasped. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. Second thing he did, not only did he not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Then he took on the form of a servant. And Then not only did he just take on the form of a servant, but he was born in the likeness of man. And we read that, and maybe because we're so used to hearing that, we, we lose the significance of that. A, a holy, eternal God became a human being, one who was without sin, limited himself to a body and became sin and lived amongst sinners. One theologian says that Jesus becoming a human is equivalent to a human becoming a roach. Look at the humility of Jesus and how he made himself low. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. Paul says, in your relationships, in community, look to Jesus. Look at how he did not grasp the fact that he was God. Look at the fact that he became a servant. And not just any kind of servant, but he became a human servant. Look at the fact that he was willing to embrace death. God embraced death. Even death on a cross, the most excruciating and embarrassing death he embraced. Why? In order to show you a pattern of humility. Jesus is our pattern for humility. You don't have to fight for significance in your relationships with others. Embrace the mindset of Jesus that says, I am going to intentionally right now humble myself. This person is boasting. They act like they're the only person who ever graduated from anything. They act like they're the only person that has a nice car. Instead of inserting my pride here and boasting myself, I'm going to humble myself and smile and say, praise the Lord. Not going to fight for significance. I'm going to look to him who is ultimately significant and how he embraced insignificance in order that I might be significant in the eyes of God. Jesus is our pattern. But Jesus is also our pardon for the times that we fail and that we walk in pride, we can look to the cross and find forgiveness. We're all going to blow it. We all are going to worship at the altar of significance at some point this week. We all are going to be selfish in thinking, what can you do for me today? But when we do, we can remind ourselves of Jesus' example and Jesus' pardon, the fact that he died upon the cross for all the times that I would walk and live in pride. 
And we can find forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you for all unrighteousness when you blow it at home and you will blow it at home trying to prove that you're the man or that you're the woman or that you should be the one that's in control. Jesus says, come to me and I will forgive you and wash you. Though your sins be red as scarlet, I will make you whiter than snow. Not only is Jesus in the cross our pattern, not only is it our pardon, but it is our power. It is by the cross that we find the power to live. It's at the cross that we hear God say, you are significant. I don't care who says what about you, you are significant. I don't care how they teased you when you were younger because you didn't look like everyone else. You are significant. I don't care how much you make at your job. You are significant. I don't care what level of education you have. You are significant. I don't care what your spouse says about you and how they try to tear you down. You are significant. You're significant because you haven't received an alien righteousness from Jesus. You are declared right in the sight of God because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. At the cross, at the cross is where we find our significance. At the cross is is where we find our example. The Bible says that God, he, he humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. And we see in Philippians chapter 2 that God, just as he promised, exalted Jesus. And the Bible says because he humbled himself, that he one day will be exalted above every name. It says, at the name of Jesus, he said, every knee shall bow. And I love what it says. It it goes into some details. It says, every knee in heaven will bow. That means that everybody who's went on before Jesus returned in heaven, they're going to bow along with the angels. But then he goes on and says that everything on the earth is going to bow. That's everybody that was still breathing when Jesus came back. But then he goes on, he says, but everybody under the earth is going to bow. That's everybody who did not accept Jesus as Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to bow in submission to Jesus as Lord and be saved. That they're going to bow because they're going to have no other choice but to bow. When they look at Jesus, the lion and the lamb. When they look at Jesus and see what he's done on the cross, even though they foolishly rejected him, they're going to bow. Look to the cross for significance. Count other people as more significant than yourself. Let's rally around the cross of Jesus and not our own preferences. At the cross, you find joy. Or it's at the cross that you find love. If you hadn't experienced the cross today, I invite you to experience the cross and find peace. I invite you to experience the cross and find forgiveness. I invite you to experience the cross and find, experience the long-suffering of God. At the cross, you find purpose. At the cross, you find humility. As the hymnist said, when I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Is at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burdens of my sins rolled away. It was there by faith that I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. If you find yourself tripping today, look to the cross. If you find yourself worried today, look to the cross. 
If you find yourself confused today, look to the cross. If you find yourself in the midst of a fight, look to the cross. If you want somebody to see you as significant, look to the cross. Because it's at the cross that you will find that significance. Stop panting and lusting and pleading for somebody to think you're special and realize that the most important person in the world has declared you as special, has declared you as his child, has adopted you into his family in spite of you. And he loves you. And he's coming back for you. He's going to bust open the clouds one day. And he's going to have eyes like flaming fire. And he's going to be looking for those that he calls his own. And he's coming back for you and me in spite of us. In spite of our special interests. In spite of our preferences. In spite of our attitudes. In spite of us sitting on God and not praising him. He said, I'm coming back for you. Because I paid a price for you. I gave my life for you. Look to the cross for your pattern. Look to the cross for your pardon. But look to the cross for your power. You say, you just don't know my sister. She be tripping. If I don't come back word for word for, with her, um, I'm going to lose and that's just going to empower her. I'm saying look to the cross for power. Say, Lord, humble me before her. Humble me before him. Help me to not want to win this valley. Help me to believe that vengeance is yours and that one day you're going to repay. That I don't have to spend my time living down a lie when I can live up to the truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father God, that we would be an authentic community, and that we would look to you by grace. Help us, Father God, not to live in fear, but to live in faith. For the person who's constantly fighting for significance because maybe they've got a wound, a, a mother wound, a father wound, or, or maybe they were teased, or maybe they just feel like because they didn't finish something that they are not significant and they're constantly jealous and having the wrong ambitions, help them, Father God, today. Help us today, Lord, to count all as lost. Help us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross. Help us to see what's most important. And that only what we do for you is going to last. Help us to rally around Jesus. Nothing else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just stand to your feet.